Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Ira Pastor, who is CEO of BioCork, Inc. Today we will discuss regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation in humans. Ira has over 30 years of experience across multiple sectors of the pharmaceutical industry, including pharmaceutical commercialization, biotech drug development, managed care, distribution, and retail. Prior to working at BioCork, he served as Vice President of Business Development for drug development company Phytomedics, Inc., raising $40 million of private equity, consummating over $50 million of licensing deals, and bringing the lead drug candidate from the discovery stage to Phase three development. Prior to that, he was employed by SmithKline Beecham Pharmaceuticals in sales, marketing, and business strategy. Ira has also served as Vice President of Corporate Development for the Pharmacy Benefit Management Company, Prescription Delivery Systems, acquired by Cigna Health Insurance. He is a board member of Regenerage SAPI the CV, a clinical company focused on expedited translational therapeutic applications of regenerative and rejuvenative healthcare interventions, the Reanima Project, and a member of the World Economic Forum's Human Enhancement Council. Ira, welcome. Alina, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's start with what do we mean by these terms? We all think we know, but I have a feeling that in the industry, perhaps they have definitions of their own. So what do we mean when we say regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation? Absolutely. So when we use the word regeneration, uh, we are talking about uh, the ability to recreate uh, lost or damaged tissues, organs, and even limbs that are identical in both structure and function to the original ones that you have. So when you think about um, that as a definition, um, clearly we as humans have some obvious regenerative capabilities currently. Um, Things like our hair, uh, our blood, and our skin is constantly turning over and regenerating. Uh, So are our wounds in the sense that we are very good at healing ourselves when we get cut. However, when it comes to the really big parts of our bodies, organs, the heart, the brain, the pancreas, the spinal cord. Uh, As humans, when these things are damaged, they do not come back. And so our ultimate goal is uh, how we can reconnect humans to some of these more complex forms of regeneration uh, that we only see in uh, other species like salamanders and newts uh, in the natural world. Um, Now, when we talk about reversion, or we are talking about the ability to actually reverse um, the state of a cell that you have. So if you think of something like a cancer cell that has, uh, at one point in time, was healthy and made transitions to a cancerous state, uh, in that particular case, we are talking about reverting and cleaning up the cell and letting it start over again. So in essence, turning it back in time from point B uh, back to point A, where it was uh, a healthy breast cell, a healthy colon cell, a healthy cell in the lungs. So these are the real two differences between what regeneration is all about uh, and reversion. Rejuvenation is the third R that we talk about, and this is a, a larger R. This has to do with, in essence, turning back biologic time Uh, across the whole body. And whether we're talking, once again, about a brain or a heart 
uh, or your liver or your pancreas or your kidneys, uh, as we either undertake regeneration and reversion, we are in essence turning back the clock that every one of our cells has. So indirectly, uh, we are looking at rejuvenating from an aging perspective those parts of your body as well. So those are in essence the three R's. Uh, that we are focused on, and that is sort of what each individually means. Is reversion the same as repair? Yes, yes. I, I apologize. We use them interchangeably. Sometimes um, reversion, I guess, a more complete term for those particular diseases where you may not want uh, a regeneration event, but basically all diseases where you want to change the damage that has happened in a cell itself. How similar or different are these concepts to, say, for example, the much publicized cloning, the famous cloning of the sheep so many years ago, and I read somewhere in the paper that a celebrity had had her dog cloned? That's an, it's a really interesting question, uh, and it's actually related in the context that when one clones, so basically taking a cell from your cat or your dog or that sheep uh, and places it uh, inside an egg, a fresh egg, uh, you are in essence creating a new form of life uh, in sense a new embryo um, and creating that new life form in the womb. Obviously, it is different than it naturally occurs with a man and a woman. But that is, in essence, a cloning process. But in cloning, it is only happening to one cell, the cell that you choose to clone. Uh, and that cell gets turned back in time, and a new cat or a new dog or a new sheep is ultimately created. In our particular case, we're not interested in cloning. We are interested in the rest of your body. So you and I and everybody listening is made up of about 50 trillion cells. So with our particular program, we're not interested in cloning you and making another Elena, but we are interested in how the same signals, the same biological signals that turn back time in that clone can be applied to the rest of your body in the form of drugs and other interventions to make you, once again, biologically younger and rejuvenated across your entire body. So those would be the two different, really the main difference between uh, a cloning experiment and creating a second you as opposed to just rejuvenating the existing you. Isn't rejuvenating the existing you a variation on the regeneration concept? I, I, these all seem to me, sitting on the outside, like they're all sort of cousins, the regeneration, the rejuvenation, the cloning they they are all related by sort of the underlying theme that um, we are turning back time in those cells. So obviously in the, the more futuristic example, um, if we are able to regrow your arm uh, that is missing, yes, that arm will be uh, a much younger arm than the rest of your body. So your arm will technically be the arm of a younger person at the same time that we have regenerated it. Rejuvenation refers to across the entire body. So um, there are very few organisms on the planet that can regenerate or rejuvenate their entire body today. Uh, there are a few jellyfishes and, and other organisms like that that turn back time and become a child again, and start life over. Uh, we're not there yet, but that is the, the concept um, that we are trying to get to. Uh, and we are obviously much more complicated than a jellyfish, um, being 50 trillion cell person, uh, but the whole goal is the same, whether it's one cell or your entire body, how we make you, at the end of the day, more youthful uh, across the entire body. Does this apply, you were talking about 
the growth, I guess, of a new arm, does this apply, this technology, these capability to something such as an organ, say, if you have kidney issues or liver issues or heart, bad heart, are you at the place where this is possible? Yes, that is that is the, the core goal of the company. And we've been spending a lot of time uh, specifically on what you just mentioned, the human kidney. So basically, uh, if you think about uh, kidney uh, degeneration and kidney disease, uh, currently uh, in the United States, that represents uh, between the amount of money we spend on uh, both dialysis and or kidney transplants, that's about a $30 billion market. When you go outside of the United States, you're talking about another $30 billion a year we spend. So about $60 billion on um, trying to keep you alive when your kidneys start to go. So in our case, our goal is um, not to you don't will not need a transplant in the future. The goal will be to repair and regenerate the kidneys that are falling apart inside you directly so you regrow younger, healthier kidneys uh, that are non-diseased. And in that particular case, um, you know, one can make a very good economic argument that uh, if we can even slow down your progression – uh, in a state of earlier kidney disease, so you do not have to ever think about dialysis or think about getting a kidney transplant, uh, we've done something major. And so inducible kidney regeneration is a major target of ours, not just because of the size of the market for the kidney as a target, but also all of the diseases that then trickle down from the kidney, because obviously when your kidneys don't work, um, you not only have kidney problems, you have nerve problems, you have problems with your liver, you will problems that will trickle up to your heart because of the control of blood pressure. So the kidney affects everything, um, including the central nervous system. So hence why we are very focused on that as a, uh, as a target. For regeneration. How is this done? So we focus on developing biologics. Now what are biologics? Biologics are basically protein-based drugs. Uh, th think your insulin, think a growth hormone, think a vaccine. So we're not talking about synthetic drugs or chemicals. We're talking about proteins and peptides that typically are responsible for this type of regeneration in the biologic kingdom. So what do we do? What have we been doing at the company the last several years? We've been studying frogs. We've been studying salamanders. Uh, we have been studying fish whose brains you can cut out only to regrow. There are many wonderful species that already do this type of regeneration. We have been studying the genetics the proteins, the transcripts, all of the bioactive activity that goes on when that poor little salamander's leg is chopped off by a predator. And then we are looking for similar substances that we would find in humans. So we can then craft a biologic, let's say, cocktail of substances that can then be applied to the kidney, to the liver, to the brain and the spinal cord to induce this type of reprogramming and regeneration. Uh, we're not a stem cell company. We decided early on that uh, a more feasible approach for these more complex types of regeneration is to follow what we see in nature. Uh, and that is the path we're going. So at the end of the day, what BioQuark is producing from a drug perspective are biologics, which are, you know, have been on the, you know, the market for the last hundred years in one form or another and are much more, um, you know, accepted by regulators. Uh, you know, the, the area of stem cells and genetic engineering and things like that, um, a little more complex and much more pricey. Uh, that, and, and we did not want to go in that particular direction strategically as a company. How close are you or have you succeeded 
to the degree that you have regenerated or I'm not sure what the term is, uh, what the applicable term is here, but an organ that is actually functioning, a human organ. Uh, we are uh, getting quite close. We have um, no. BioQuark has two components. We are a U.S.-based company, but we also have our uh, ex-U.S. activities as well. So in the United States, we are still a couple years away from our clinical experience here just because of the nature of uh, the regulatory paths in the U.S. and the time that it takes. Uh, at the same point, we have been active in partnerships abroad, uh, moving some of the earlier stage clinical work forward. So uh, drug development obviously comes in multiple phases, and first, obviously, you need to test substances for safety, and then short-term exposure, longer-term exposure. There's a whole dynamic. So we have begun uh, some initial human work overseas, and it's seen some very exciting regenerative capabilities uh, initially in our spinal cord uh, research in terms of uh, paralysis. Uh, as far as the complete organ regeneration, we're still a couple of years away. However, the kidney is our main target in our U.S. program. But from what we have seen the first several years and the ability not you know, to recapitulate this type of regeneration in mammals in the lab, something you know, mammals do not have this type of regeneration, that was quite exciting in its own right. Uh, however, slowly but surely, uh, on both the uh, neurology front and some of the work we're doing in the area of human skin care, uh, we're beginning to see the first signs of uh, efficacy and tolerability of these types of materials in humans. As you mentioned, skin, what comes to my mind, of course, is the victims of fires. Anybody who has skin damage, of course, would benefit tremendously from these positive results that you're describing, right? Yeah, I mean, the hu human skin is um, the largest organ in the body. We don't normally think about it. It affects everything below. Uh, it is not just a membrane per se, but it, it, uh, it is connected via miles of nerves and blood vessels uh, to every organ below. So it is a critical organ. And yes, when it is burnt, uh, when it is damaged at a level below the epithelium, which is you know, normally regenerates, you do not have great regenerative capabilities as a human. Uh, and you, you're very good at generating scar tissue, uh, but that is not functional and that causes all sorts of other problems. So clearly, yes, the uh, ability to regenerate the deeper levels of the skin, uh, specifically the ones that are tied into the deeper functioning of the human body, uh, is yeah, clearly a very, a very important area for us. Um, we have focused initially more on the uh, more topical autoimmune type diseases, so things like psoriasis uh, and you know, actinic keratosis uh, that are more easily uh, addressable uh, topically. But yes, when it comes to uh, deep wounding, uh, fires, uh, things that you may see uh, or you know, soldiers may experience in, in battlefields and so forth in terms of complex irritants uh, and other uh, sort of chemical substances. Um, all of these are important focuses uh, for regenerative capabilities. You also talk about rejuvenation. I'm assuming that in that case we're talking about people who are elderly in their latter years looking for ways to live longer is that the concept behind the rejuvenation part of our discussion yeah i mean that is uh, you know there, there's sort of two terms out there nowadays one is sort of lifespan uh, and the other uh, term is health span so the ability you know, if you think about uh, a typical life how we uh Aging, you know, of course, later on really decreases our functionality and our resilience. And humans, you know, we, we drop off a cliff very rapidly as we go downhill. So the whole goal is to uh, not just extend life. Obviously, that would be a wonderful sort of side effect of everything we're doing. But really extending 
health span. So, you know, we like it would be wonderful to if someone who is 90 years old uh, is basically biologically 50, making 90 the new 50, as we say. So uh, although chronologically you still may be 90 uh, and we've pushed your lifespan out, we've also filled in substantially the healthy period of time where now yeah, you can do <laughs> much more than you would normally contemplate uh, in the traditional model where, you know, you retire and then unfortunately fall apart. Uh, you know, you might travel more, you might have a second career at 80 or whatever, but yes, that, that would be the ideal goal uh, that, that we're looking for. And once again, it is all, we like to say, uh, because you know, we're, we, we don't really position ourselves as a, an anti-aging company, but rejuvenation is fortunately a natural side effect of turning back time in your cells, tissues, and organs. It just happens. So we're excited about that. When you talked about falling apart, I think were the words you used, the first thing that comes to my mind is the brain, perhaps because there's so much concern now with Alzheimer's and dementia, and there's so many varieties of dementia, how linked to those is the rejuvenation that we're talking about? Is it possible to rejuvenate the brain? Yes, and this has been a um, a very important um, target of ours for, for the last several years, um, both in terms of acute trauma to the brain, in terms of things like traumatic brain injury, but also the chronic degenerative diseases, as you're mentioning, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's dementia, Parkinson's, and so forth. Um, there are, you know, people argue in my industry all the time, you know, they'll They'll say, well, heart disease and cancer kill more people than Alzheimer's will. And I, you know, I point out, well, that may be the case today, but most of the smart people will tell you that if you, while we do have okay interventions for heart disease and average interventions today for cancer, we have nothing for Alzheimer's and nothing on the horizon. And the numbers that are coming towards us, not just in the U.S., but everywhere around this world, if we do not address Alzheimer's and related dementia soon, uh, the problems, both you know, biological problems, but also economic problems that are amongst us in 20 years, are going to make today's healthcare problems look like nothing. It is a major problem, and so yes, we are focused on it from three perspectives. One regeneration of the central nervous system, regeneration of the brain, and the destructive events of Alzheimer's. Uh, that is clearly one target of ours. However, um, Alzheimer's is a continuum. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, there is a major chronic inflammatory component to Alzheimer's that happens before the ultimate destruction of the neurons in the brain. We need to repair and revert those cells as well, uh, those cell states, because we can regenerate the brain, but if there's still a tremendous amount of noxious inflammation, that's going to lead downhill again. If you go a little bit before the inflammation, what are we finding out? We're finding out that many people in the country nowadays are beginning to classify Alzheimer's as a third form of diabetes because of the connection to sugar levels in the brain. So uh, it is a long problem, and we think the smartest way to address it uh, is not just, you know, as the pharmaceutical industry looks at it today, they want to give you a pill that maybe make you, make you remember things for an additional couple of weeks, but we want to regenerate what's missing and repair slash revert the cells as they are going downhill in the earlier stages of the disease. Uh, and obviously, Alzheimer's is something that, you know, and once again, it doesn't come overnight. It kicks in over decades of your life, uh, quietly behind the scenes, uh, like other diseases, and then it hits hard at the end. Uh, so we want to be basically at several points along that chain of events. In your research, have you looked at issues such as toxins, which have been linked to 
the decline in mental abilities such as Alzheimer's and I mean, I don't know if Parkinson's as well. And on the other end of that, on the opposite end of that, the effect that exercise has on the growth of brain cells and how all of these may be linked to rejuvenation. Uh, Those are great questions. Yes. Uh, Number one, on the toxin side of things, yes. Um, All the models, first and foremost, that we ever conduct or the accepted models in the biomedical industry nowadays for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and and ALS and so forth, all are basically poison models, right? Unfortunately, you have to take these animals and poison them with something and their brain begins to fall apart. So the, the obvious connections between what we do in the lab as an accepted model and then what we see in the real world in terms of either pollutants or all of these sort of approved uh, ingredients in our foods and our healthcare products, which for some reason are not, you know, 100% clean in terms of carcinogenicity, yet they are approved substances because they are a, you know, a, a beneficial window, let's say. Um, all of these are obvious problems. Uh, clearly, pesticides, herbicides, you know, these things that never <laughs> have to be tested on humans, um, yet are tested extensively on animals, and we know that everything that happens in animals does not mimic humans all the time. Um, clearly, there are tons of connections there, uh, and you know the only answer we have for that nowadays is basically you know what we do in our own family is try to live a a cleaner life and one where whatever we're taking in exogenously uh, is somewhat closer to a natural form than not. Um, Now, to the issue of exercise, absolutely, because exercise uh, has to do not just with making you feel good and improving your blood flow and, and so forth, and even your, your mental capacity. But when you exercise, your gene expression across the 50 trillion cells that you're made of changes substantially. Uh, and the very, you know, when you exercise, uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing, whether you're out running or I'm lifting weights or the third person's mountain climbing or whatever the, the situation may be, we're stressing the body with good stresses. You know, that's why we get stronger or you can run further the next time you work out than the original time. The body responds to positive stresses. Uh, the body needs randomness and positive stresses in its life. And so this is integrally important, not just for sort of the short-term health benefits, but for the longer-term sort of adaptation to uh, the world around us. And, you know, they say, you know, the body is meant to move. Uh, you know, there's obvious things that we're supposed to do uh, that, unfortunately, too many of us don't do, whether it's sitting in front of uh, a computer screen for eight hours a day or, you know, deciding to eat at McDonald's as opposed to having, you know, a nice salad. All of these things are integrally important to keeping not just the system running, but to making the system more robust the next time you do it and hence enhancing all of the downstream components, regeneration and repair. So exercise, extremely important uh, as far as the big picture is concerned. You talked about the description of Alzheimer's as a form of diabetes because of sugar. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I mean, there is a classification now uh, that many people are putting Alzheimer's into called type 3 diabetes. So if you think of the there's, – there's, there's basically two other forms of diabetes, the type 1, which we are uh, – our children are born with, where the pancreas uh, is destroyed uh, endogenously, and then type 2 diabetes, where we have a normal functioning uh, sort of metabolic system, but we are overloading it with fats and sugars and alcohol uh, and not exercising, which yields that sort of insulin sensitive diabetes, which is type 2. Type 3 diabetes is where many of the 
smart people, as I say, are beginning to classify Alzheimer's because of the connection between sugar, inflammation, and central nervous system damage. What about the argument that it isn't sugar that causes the problems with diabetes, that it is, in fact, the Western diet, including an excess of animal products and dairy products, that is the cause behind this boom in diabetes that we've been seeing in the most recent decades? What have you heard about that? Yes, it, it's it's all connected. I mean, sugar is clearly part of it, but yeah, you know, large amounts of of the Western diet, um, you know, obviously the uh, the fats are important. Um, the but the, you know, it's sort of it's separating sort of those basics is the uh, sort of overlooked, in my opinion, sort of processed aspect on how much, you know, we try to mimic uh, natural things nowadays with uh, synthetic um, bioproducts, whether, you know, the things like artificial vanilla flavoring or, you know, all sorts of surfactants and other substances that we're throwing into these processed foods, not for our, the, the customer's benefit, but for the, you know, the baker's benefit or for the processor's benefit. Um, food is a mess. Uh, and it is all, when I say food, Western processed food diets is a messy situation. And, you know, one of the things I like to point out, uh, you know, as bad as, you know, things as smoking are, you know, at least the cigarette companies have to put on their labels that they kill you. Um, the processed food industry, uh, strangely enough, while its ingredients have to be sort of recognized as safe by a certain standard, they never have to be tested in combination. This is an amazing thing. When you think about it, when you look at a label nowadays that has 50 ingredients in it, only four which you can pronounce, and to think that not only those substances, you know, they're in there, but they've never been tested in combination with one another, uh, which obviously modifies how they work in your body, how they're metabolized, and so forth. Um, it's all a pretty big mess. So, yes, um, I think that the issue with that type 2 form of diabetes and the metabolic syndrome disaster that we see in society in the United States and abroad um, is integrally connected, no doubt about it. What about the idea that the food for our brain is sugar? that we need sugar for our brain to function well. So is it refined sugar or certain forms of refined sugar that is causing the problems, that if we eliminate sugar entirely, isn't this going to cause problems in terms of not having enough brain food? Absolutely. Uh, you, you, you hit that right on the head, uh, no pun intended. But, yes, I mean, the brain uh, does – obviously rely on uh, sugar uh, as, a, as a main part of its metabolic process. Now, there are um, cases and, you know, the whole issue of, you know, sort of this uh, ketosis or, you know, this fat-centric uh, diet uh, for early-stage dementia that, you know, has been in clinical development in various areas in recent years is obviously studying what happens, not just if you – change the brain's metabolism process from sugars to fats and, and how that may improve things. Um, I'm not an expert in the whole area of endocrinology, but uh, clearly, uh, yes, there. Uh, when it comes to carbohydrates and carbohydrate chemistry, uh, as you just pointed out, clearly uh, much there is much difference between um, – you know, what you get out of sugar cane, what you get out of corn, and all of the processes that go on in changing those structures and, and what they do in the human body. And carbohydrate chemistry is one of the areas that is, in many ways, even more sophisticated and elaborate than even protein-based chemistry, which has been, you know, the basis of the, the pharmaceutical industry for years now. And it's something that there is much less expertise in it out there than uh, others. So we are, I would say, very, you know, 
we don't focus too much on it, of course, but um, it is clearly one of those areas that um, is uh, more is is a more exotic research frontier than than many others, and clearly needs to have uh, resources focused on it. How close to success in these areas are you in terms of our listeners. In other words, this discussion that you and I are having, it sounds out there for the average person who may be contemplating the kind of future that they're seeing in their parents or their grandparents who perhaps have died from one of these chronic illnesses that we've been discussing. How tangible are the results for the future? How relevant is the discussion to them? Or is this more of a the business of but we're not quite there yet? No, no, we're we're much uh, we're much closer than um than sort of the typical vision uh sort of more visionary approach that uh the industry likes to put out there. Uh one of the things uh, and, and I said close as I said, in the United States, as an example, we're three years from uh, clinical study, we're five years from registration for our first organ regeneration indication. Five years is a pretty good window uh, because a lot of things, when it comes to the more sort of esoteric or exotic stuff that the industry creates, whether we're talking about genetic engineering or some of the cloning stuff or chimera production or all this other far-out stuff that you may read about, which may be decades away, no, we we made a decision early on in structuring this company that we were going to base it on a 20th century model of what it takes to produce a new drug substance and not some of the more futuristic things that are decades out that may cost you a million dollars to even get. Um, we wanted to keep it more relevant to the general population. So once again, coming back to our company for a minute, uh, we have, say, a five-year uh, time frame on a U.S. indication, so a U.S. registration and approval. However, before getting there, we are also already active and going to market right now on the consumer packaged good front with partners in terms of some of the skincare applications that do not require the pharmaceutical path. So we see short-term and longer-term opportunities, but ones that are not uh, too far in the future to be sort of comprehended or for people to care about. Uh, we are relevant today. Uh, and in between now with the consumer products and five years from now with new drugs, uh, as mentioned, we are also, you know, we, we're, we're an international company in the sense we are out there also forming partnerships uh, in places like Mexico, South Africa, Thailand, uh, where we are also moving the programs forward. And, hey, if we can get to market in four years as opposed to five in those countries, uh, we are also doing a service because it is a global world out there when it comes to biomedical research now. And we cannot just be U.S.-centric, although the U.S. is obviously 40 percent of the healthcare dollars. So uh, we're, we're, we're still very interested in the U.S., but we're not we're not too far in the future to not care about. Did you say consumer skin care applications? Yes. It, so what are those? So those are, those are basically uh, dermatological cosmetic products that uh, have non-disease claims but are based on the same chemistries that we are developing on the drug side. Uh, so uh, wrinkling, uh, skin discolorations, we're doing some uh, hair loss work now, um, but basically everything – on the external part of the body um, that fits into the uh, regulatory model of uh, non-drug skin care. Topical? Yes. Now, when you say 40% of the healthcare dollars, does that mean consumed stateside, or are you also referring to healthcare tourism, Americans who are traveling abroad in search of capabilities that are not available stateside or more affordable care, et cetera. Yeah, well that, that 40, I, was, I was referring to the, the, the big number, the $7 trillion or so that we spend globally on everything healthcare-related nowadays. Um, 
I was starting to destroy the three three trillion plus that we spend in the United States now. Um, we we are we do have our sort of pulse on the uh, medical tourism dynamic. Um, and with our you know, partners in Mexico and so forth, uh, we do keep that market in mind because it is, you know, it's what it is. It's you know, $70 billion market right now. And we cannot ignore it. Um, and we, you know, it, it used to be, um, you know, something that was um, reserved for sort of, I guess, more niche uh industries in terms of inexpensive, you know, plastic surgery and, and dental work and things of this nature. However, the last couple of years has really seen some shocking moves. Uh, you know, the, the fifth largest drug company in the world, Merck, United States company, uh, last year did a deal with the government of China uh, to basically create a tropical sort of island off the coast of China where medical tourism uh, is going to be occurring with Merck's unapproved drugs. So it's a really, there's some unique things happening uh, globally right now that, you know, we have to keep our eye on because it's not, uh, things like medical tourism are not niche anymore um, and are sort of part of that big picture. How are you able to, once you develop these products and applications, protect them? There are countries such as China, that have been accused of copyright and patent infringement to great degrees, as well as hacking and stealing private data that could be crippling for companies developing new technologies. How do you keep yours safe? Uh, We had to um, utilize a rather unique model for the drug industry. So while we do engage in uh, intellectual property and writing patents, at the same time, uh, we have to keep in mind that some of the most well-protected drugs uh, out there um, do not have patents. Um, Case in point, um, Pfizer's Premarin which has been on the market since the 1940s, uh, has never been copied. Why? Uh, Because it is a heterogenic mixture of substances where one can never, whether you're in the United States or a generic company operating in China, you can never copy it because it is a mixture that is nondescript. Uh, As a result, uh, what we are doing at BioQuark is, in essence, combining uh, three things. We're combining intelligent patenting to the extent of the, you know, the parts of the puzzle that we want to disclose. But we are also, um, due to the fact that these are biologics produced in living systems, living cell systems, uh, we are keeping a bit of the Coca-Cola secret formula as well. Uh, and this is, we think... Uh, combined with uh, the bioequivalency problem when it comes to these complex products, uh, really more formidable, let's say, uh, than you know just showing up with a another sort of single chemical that is very easy to copy. So um, it is a little different, once again, than your traditional drug uh, intellectual property, but we think it, it secures us. Uh, beyond uh, a traditional composition of matter strategy. Are you relying to a significant degree on technology and AI technology specifically, since that seems to be such a hot topic lately? Everyone for everything seems to be using artificial intelligence. Are you using it, and if so, to what degree? We're using it to um, a slight degree right now. Um, clearly, AI is is the big thing uh, on many uh, fronts and in many industries. Uh, in healthcare, um, we see really two uh, two important fronts. One has to do with how you manage uh, all of the biologic information. Uh, that flows through projects like ours and others in the biologic space. 
So things from genomics, uh, the study of our genes, to proteomics, the study of the proteins that are produced from the genes, um, alone, you know, the, that is, uh, when you think about that we have 25,000 protein-coding genes in our cells, which make, you know, an endless array, sort of an infinite array of possibilities, uh, that is something that you need artificial intelligence to really sort through and understand because they are the really the uh, basic properties and components of what makes us human and what makes us alive. Uh, you can't study that data um, by yourself without sort of an AI component or you'll be doing that for millions of years. Uh, on top of that, um, equally important is uh, – the issue regarding heterogeneity in patient populations. We've known about this for years, but we've really never done anything about it because it was another area we really didn't have enough power to crunch uh, the data. Uh, when I talk about things like pharmacogenomics or toxicogenomics, in essence, uh, you take a pill, Elena, and you have a good effect. I take that same pill and I have no effect and I get a rash. Um, these differences uh, in populations of people in America or all over the world are integrally important because we know today that all the drugs out there that are produced only work in a small part of the population because of these genetic differences. So these two areas, both at the genetic level but also at the population level, are extremely important targets for artificial intelligence because without it, we won't be able to understand the complexity of what we're dealing with. What's next? What's next? Um, well, uh, one of our uh, core focuses, as you know, uh, is the central nervous system. Uh, however, the central nervous system for us uh, does not stop at Alzheimer's disease or spinal cord injury. Um, and we have a project that is a, uh, a niche project for us, but nonetheless, uh, we started because we felt it was very important. Uh, and this has to do with the severe disorders of consciousness. So everything that falls into the basket um, when we become unconscious, so persistent vegetative states, uh, coma, and even the uh, most severe uh, brain death, or the uh, basically the ability uh, to um, regenerate and repair the central nervous system in the brain of someone who is recently deceased. Um, while these programs may sound a little futuristic and out there, uh, they are nonetheless very important in the big picture uh, of what it means to be uh, alive and healthy, because uh, while every day we lose 100,000 people to the diseases of old age, we lose an additional 50,000 people every day because of chronic trauma uh, to the central nervous system, car crashes, uh, assaults, uh, things of this nature, uh, catastrophic injury in a war zone. So uh, we felt, based on our focus on regeneration, and specifically regeneration of the central nervous system, that we needed to put a little bit of our resources into this niche as well. Because if we can figure out how to begin to blur the distinction to what it means to be in a coma and what it means to be dead, um, we are going to make some very important transitions on the path to uh, more, much more substantial recovery from uh, damage and uh, destruction that we see in the central nervous system in the coming years. So this is a, uh, it's much more niche uh, and, and not integrally core to the program of obviously living subjects, but is nonetheless something that we feel is integrally important to the big picture of rejuvenation and repair. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Um, I'm on the record as saying I believe that death, um, at least death of the central nervous system following acute trauma, will be solved uh, long before we solve 
cancer or before we solve aging. Uh, death is something that um, while 65 million of us leave this world every year, uh, brain death has one dynamic. Uh, we've known about it for, for the last 50 years since it was defined in 1968 at Harvard Medical School. We know what causes it. And we know there are many organisms in nature that can regenerate their brains following destruction and removal. Uh, if we can mimic what we see in all of the other areas of nature in humans, uh, we will go a long way to, um, to basically undertaking some transformational uh, changes in what it means to be either alive or dead. Now, this does not mean, uh, people ask, well, this does not mean that death will be gone. Uh, but what it does mean is that death from acute trauma to the central nervous system uh, will no longer be a, a death sentence uh, and that we will finally have sort of blurred, uh, you know, what, mean, what it means to be alive in terms of a coma and what it means to be dead in terms of irreversible coma. So uh, needless to say, it's a, a unique undertaking, but it is something that um, we feel is not uh, unsolvable. Uh, with the tools we have today. If I understand correctly, you're saying you think that it may be possible, that it will be possible even before finding solutions for other, for chronic illnesses such as cancer and diabetes and heart disease, to revive people who have died from a trauma to their central nervous system. Is that correct? Correct. And the main reason is death is death of the of the death of the central nervous system in those cases is one thing. Uh, cancer. You said tomorrow somebody has lung cancer. There's 200 different types of lung cancer. Uh, there are many different forms of breast cancer. Um, diseases like that, as we are finding out, have many causes. Um, death has one cause, and Hence, why we are at least showing a little more confidence that um, it could be possibly successful in a much shorter period of time than most may think. No, we are not. No, we are not creating zombies. <laughs> I was trying not to use the Z word, but thank you for clarifying. And we could talk about that topic, I'm sure, for a long time. So I'm going to, since you said it was a niche topic and that you're still in the early stages, I'm going to go back to the more general and greater use, I guess, topics that we started out with in terms of regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation what do you anticipate, I know you're not there yet, but what do you anticipate the costs, or put it another way, the access will be for the average person? How close to being within reach will this be, may it be, once it's developed? Uh, as I mentioned before, when we set this company up, uh, we based it on... 21st century thinking, but 20th century tools. We are developing biologics, um, and our position is if a, a person or a healthcare provider or system can support insulin or a vaccine or a growth hormone, they can afford our products. Uh, we are not, as I mentioned, doing anything beyond existing biologic technology. So you may read in the news, for instance, of uh, recently approved genetic engineering therapy. It only cost a million and a half dollars a shot. No. Uh, we realize that regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation affect all seven billion of us on this planet, and it would make no sense developing a therapeutic modality that only 2,000 people could, could afford. So uh, if you can afford or you're in a healthcare system, some of the basic biologic products that have been on the market for the last 100 years, our products will be affordable to everybody. Will they be 
available, administered for sale through retail outlets at specialized locations via hospitals and doctors? What do you anticipate? Yeah, with the exception of the consumer skincare component of our business, um, this will all be uh, either hospital or clinic uh, centric. Um, these will not, you know, we're not developing, um, pill, you know, basically little white pills that you would get at your local Rite Aid uh, because these are biologics. They have to be administered parenterally, uh, either from injection or otherwise. Um, so we are not developing something that you would get a prescription for and get, you know, a, a, a three months of supply at, at CVS. Um, however, that does not mean that, uh, you know, it would require a long uh, hospital stay or anything. If you think of some of the sort of the outpatient uh, infusion centers they have nowadays or certain biologics uh, and so forth, uh, I think it would fit into those existing models. What are the most salient ethical issues that you have encountered and how are you dealing with them? Um, ethical issues in terms of um, the Reanima project, uh, or in gen- you know, just general bioethical research. Uh, expand on that one for a second, because sure. The question, the the very basic question, just because you can do something, should you do it? Should this capability be made available to everyone? Is this something that humans should have access to? Um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, a lot of people don't realize that uh, the first organ transplantation, the first cardio and pulmonary resuscitation technologies were created 100 years ago. And we look at those tools nowadays as, uh, you know, a basic basic human rights. Um, yes, I believe that we currently um, are spending um, the number, you know, we're, it's over $7 trillion nowadays uh, on dealing with these diseases from a um, an output perspective, right? I mean, my, my, my former industry, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and then I guess the grander healthcare industry is all about treating you, uh, not about curing you. And, you know, they siphon off $7 trillion, uh, from the economy in perpetuity. I mean, you know, disease is one of those things, not like oil that runs out one day. Disease will always be with us. And so that $7 trillion will become $8 trillion and so forth, and it will keep going. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I left the pharmaceutical industry is because I couldn't, you know, deal with the fact that an industry with that power and that amount of money uh, couldn't cure us of anything. So I say absolutely. These tools should, uh, you know, be uh, available to, uh, to everyone uh, that has any form of chronic degenerative disease. Uh, and it was funny because I had a discussion uh, a few weeks ago on a show about sort of the, uh, the United Nations, you know, Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And when you go through um, sort of like, what is out there in terms of, you know, you know, nobody should be subjected to cruel or degrading treatments uh, and people should, uh, you know, be allowed to move, of course, except the people that are paralyzed. So the people should want to have be able to start a family, except for the ones that are infertile and on and on. Everything we're doing is directly related to our rights as humans uh, and not being, you know, degraded and degenerated and destroyed by these diseases that have been with us forever and we have no answers for. So, yes, I think uh, because we have the power to do this, we should use it. Um, and once again, I don't, this isn't, I don't view this as Jurassic Park or any other sort of, you know, uh, large-scale uh, eco-engineering disaster by any means. Um, this is human health. Uh, and it's a right, and we should be able to access the tools that have the ability to cure us. For people who want to know more, I'm sure that we are now leaving our listeners with way more questions than we have answered. 
certainly for people who suffer from any of these chronic illnesses or have family who suffer, they are very curious to know more about these technologies that you are developing. Where can they go to find out more? How can they enrich their knowledge of this very complex topic? Uh, come to our website at bioquark.com. We, we're very open and transparent about everything we have going on. Uh, reach out to us. We would be glad to, to talk and address any topic. Um, and, and uh, you know, we're passionate about the subject in general. The other thing I like to point out, and, you know, independent of us, um, I, I always make a point that it's very important for everyone listening in the United States and abroad to become familiar with the United States National Institutes of Health Clinical Trials Database. Because one thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but it's very important, is um, the amount of patients in the United States that never look uh, at what can be done after sort of their standard of care runs out. And in the United States alone, we have thousands of clinical trials occurring on a daily basis for all sorts of diseases, and it's really important that people take that information, which our, you know, our government produces, it's free, it's out there, uh, and go examine it. The clinicaltrials.gov website is run by the NIH, and every American should become familiar with it. Thank you, Ira, for joining us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, and thanks so much for having me. This was a great pleasure. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Ira Pastor, who is CEO of BioQuark, Inc., who discussed regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation in humans. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.